Welcome to the New England Football Show presented by Mortgage Right. I'm your host, John Serenitas. As always, I'm joined by my partners, Kevin Stone and Adam Kirchin. And tonight we have a very special guest for you. Harvard head football coach Tim Murphy joins the show this week. Coach Murphy, how are you this evening? Doing great, John, and yourself? Doing good. Doing good. Can't complain. As you well know, people stop listening after a while. So especially those football coaches, they, <laughs> they don't want to hear from us after a while. Now, before we get started with Coach Murphy, I do want to remind you guys out there that if you are looking into selling your current home or you are a first-time home buyer and want to get pre-approved for a mortgage, give Herb Divine a call at Mortgage Right. Call him at 781-254-2846. You can also go to situate.mortgageright.com. He and his team will answer any questions you might have. They are available anytime, including nights and weekends. Coach, first of all, happy 4th of July. Um Again, thank you for taking the time. We really appreciate it. Now, we were talking before we went live, and I had mentioned that this is a big week for coaches in the football world to kind of get away. This is a big vacation week before the grind starts. And I thought you made an interesting point. You said, you know what? It might have been like that, but it's changed so much because of recruiting. How much has recruiting changed, and how much has it affected your schedule as a head coach and that of your staff? Well, uh, like everything else, um, I think recruiting has certainly been accelerated both by um, student athletes wanting to find out what they're doing earlier and earlier. Uh, the NCAA allowing official visits in the summer to make sure that that opportunity is there for uh, student athletes. And the combination thereof is just, well, I remember very vividly my, my first year at Harvard. And I'm going way back, boys. Uh, my first recruiting year, January uh, wow, 1994, and you know there was nobody, there was nobody committed. There was nobody committed to the class, and I had three months to go out and get a class, and you know that was done while you were still recruiting seniors. Well, now we're these days we're following sophomores and we're recruiting juniors, and the commitments that we have or any Division One institution has at this point. None of them are seniors. They are still juniors until they start school in September. I'm curious because um, I think it's got to be very unique. Obviously, Harvard's a very unique place in a really good way. But when you're recruiting for Harvard or you know Yale or Stanford or one of these places, you have to get a kid who can handle the classwork and has the grades and everything like that. How difficult is it to, to find guys because there's not – that many kids in that pool, I would think, uh, compared to like the general population. Well, Adam, you're exactly right. I mean, we all um, subscribe to so many recruiting services. That's just the reality of recruiting uh, ultra-nationally as we do at Harvard. <clears throat> we have kids in our roster from 30-something different states, coast to coast, from California to Massachusetts, from Minnesota to Texas, El Paso, to the deep south and everything in between. Uh, so therefore, um, we have to work really hard at it. Uh, and But the reality is that there's a very tiny pool of kids that we can recruit. Uh, I often refer to them, Harvard kids, Harvard football recruits as unicorns. What does that mean? You have to be a super high character. It has to be super high academic and you have to be a division one football player. And the combination thereof elicits a very small pool of kids so therefore, we certainly have to do a good job with that particular pool once we get it whittled down. Coach, along those same lines, 
I want to ask you about the landscape of New England college football in general. You know, obviously, again, you've been around for a while. You've seen recruiting classes and, and different coaches come and go. But, you know, you got Jeff Hathley at BC, Don Brown at UMass, um, Coach Chesney over um, at Holy Cross, Coach Reno at Yale. It feels now more than ever that the excitement and also the competition in recruiting in New England might be at the highest it's ever been. Do you feel the same way? Well, certainly. I mean, you're talking about all really good coaches there. Um, there's no question about it. And uh, it's it's all competition. We understand it's a very competitive industry. And, you know, you have to market your school to the things that are going to make it, you know, really exciting and, and, and really interesting and really appropriate for any student athlete. And it doesn't mean that, um, you know, whether it's Holy Cross, whether it's BC, whether it's Yale uh, or any other schools in, here in New England, um, those are just the local schools we're competing against, but we're competing against Stanford from the, you know, Stanford in the, in the deep, uh, the far part of the West, uh, obviously in, in, in the South, let's say Duke, uh, Northwestern in the, in the uh, Midwest. So, you know, we're recruiting nationally if for no other reason, then um, we have to recruit all 50 states to be able to yield our 30 or so recruits a year. Coach Murphy, obviously, you've been at Harvard for close to 30 years now. You came from Cincinnati. At the time when you made the move here, obviously, you're inheriting a program with a great history and a great tradition. You've had a lot of success at Harvard through the years. And obviously, through the years, you're, you've also heard your name mentioned for other jobs. But what about Harvard has appealed to you enough, to you and your family, to want to stay here and make it home for your coaching career? Well, John, to your point, um, you know, I've been a head coach at the University of Maine in the CAA, um, University of Cincinnati, uh, where we played Alabama at Alabama, Penn State at Penn State, Florida State at Florida State, Miami at Miami when they won the national championship, and ver three very different schools. Uh, I had a great experience at all three schools. I, I had a terrific experience uh, working for uh, at the University of Cincinnati. Um, you know, we had, you know, part of the reason I think I got that job at age 32, being a guy from New England, was there were a lot of folks who turned it down. It was just, it was ranked, I believe, 123 out of 124 in the Sagarin ratings. And then even after that, they got hit with 18 less scholarships. Our stadium was condemned. And it was just one of those toxic uh, schools, football programs at that time. And quite frankly, I was realistic enough to know that's why a New England kid at age 32 coming from the University of Maine had the opportunity to get the job. Uh, but we turned it around. We went from 123 to 25th in the country, you know, our fifth year there. And, you know, we brought it in on time and, and we did a good job. We also had the highest academic graduation rate in school history along with that 25th in the country season. Um, so it was not an easy, it was not an easy place to leave. First of all, um, I worked for a guy I really uh, had a tremendous amount of respect for, Rick Taylor, who had been my boss at Boston University way back when I was uh, an offensive line coach and prior to becoming the head coach at Maine. And and there was a sense of accomplishment and trust between us. And he's a guy that I, I certainly am indebted to to this day. Um, but you know, I'm one of those guys that. You know, I'd love to make what 
I love to make what those SEC guys make. Heck, I love to make what that Cincinnati coach makes now. And I did take a 60% pay cut to come here. But, you know, whether I'm making X or I'm making, you know, eight times X, it wasn't the reason I got into the profession. Not that we all don't want to be recognized and be able to um, obviously do the best we can for our family. But, you know, you're looking at a guy that I only half kid people when I say, I'm not sure I could have spelled Harvard in the eighth grade. <laughs> I was the first and only one in my family to go to college. My college, my high school football coach, John Montosi, my high school basketball coach, Dick Arietta, you know, those guys believed in me. I remember them cornering me in the hall my junior year after football season going into basketball season. And. They said, hey, what, what are you doing next year? Or, or, you know, when you graduate. We've heard some rumors. I said, I don't know, I'll probably join the Marines. And they looked at each other and said, no, nah, that's not happening. And, you know, being young, impulsive, or, or worse, I said, the hell it isn't. I, I'm joining the Marines. And they said, shut up, son, you're going to college. They turned around and walked away. So I think uh, these days they would call it something else other than uh, – you know, just giving me some advice, but they believed in me. They said, you're a lot smarter than you think. And, uh, you know, I did really well in college, got two degrees, you know, kept taking free courses everywhere I've been. And I was that guy that all of a sudden, you know, loved being a student. Well, long story short, um, you know, we just felt my first job was at Brown coming out of graduate school. And I had a great experience there for two years. And so I felt like if I could ever get in that environment, it would really be a unique, unique place to coach. And we have the benefit at Harvard of having kids that are really outstanding athletes, Division One athletes, and they may not be kids that are going to uh, Ohio State or uh, certainly uh, Georgia or Alabama, but we've had 39 kids sign NFL contracts during our tenure. And we've had some great kids that, you know, just sort of transcend whatever you think their limitations are academically or athletically. And it's just a wonderful place to be. And my wife and I thought, you know, what a great place to raise kids. You know, maybe, you know, if they're right in this atmosphere, they're going to understand the power of education. And that has worked out really well for our family. So all things considered, you know, you make gut decisions in life. And, you know, one of the best ones I ever made certainly was coming to Harvard. For me, it's a, it's a joy. Uh, it's tremendous work, but uh, it's a joy with the unbelievably high character kids that we get to coach. Along those same lines, um, Tim, I, it's funny. Whenever I cover a game at Harvard, you're in that stadium. You can feel the age of the place, but you can also feel the history like you can feel it. it it feels like when you're in that place and you're looking up at the banners and everything like that and the just walking up the steps to the press box it just is a cool place to see a game i wonder what it's like to coach there does that sort of sense of feeling the history does that come through to you too it certainly does adam and like i said we realize we're not an fbs program any longer um but again we've played football longer than just about anybody on the planet and uh you know we're not gonna go in big with the nil necessarily um it's not going to be free agency like it is you know which is essentially what it is today without any rules um 
but we have tremendous history. Football is still very important in the Ivy League in general, and it's particularly important at Harvard. Coach, I want to go back to spring ball for a second. And um, after that game, in particular the spring game, after that game I asked you about kids, you know, kind of getting away for a little bit and, and maybe worrying about, you know, spring conditioning and all that. Now that we've turned the corner and, you know, camp is kind of, you know, coming up on us, are you happy with where most of you guys are right now? Uh, yes and no. I mean, we have limited – we have limited contact with our players in the summer, even though we have a bunch here on campus because it's still Ivy League rules that we can't get out in the field and coach them. But our strength and conditioning staff does a good job. The kids are coming by the office all the time. And yeah, so far, so good. And, you know, we have a chance to be a good football team. Um, we've got two quarterbacks coming back who will battle it out, who were both undefeated as quarterbacks a year ago, albeit three on the front end with Charlie Dean and three on the back end with Luke MG, um, but we're excited about our team. We've got, uh, we're gonna have another really good defense. I think our receiving core will be the best it's been in a while if we can stay healthy. We got five kids between our tight ends and our wideouts that we really like. And if the quarterback position can reach their full potential, which with their experience, you would expect that they can, we'll be a good football team. You are watching slash listening to the New England Football Show presented by Mortgage Right. I'm your host, John Serenitas. This week, we are joined by Harvard head football coach, Tim Murphy. Coach Murphy, you've had a lot of good coaches coach under you that have gone on to, to advance in their careers, whether it be Coach Reno, who's now the head coach at Yale, Coach Crook, who's at Cincinnati. What does that mean to you to see guys? You've also had a lot of guys like Joe Lamb, who's been with you for a long time, Mike Horan, these guys have been with you for a while as well. But what does it mean to you to have that stability, but then to also see some of these guys that, that coached under you go on and, and, and advance their careers and get other opportunities? It's great. I think the reality is that you want to create opportunities. I know that uh, everywhere I was, they gave me an opportunity, and I knew what I wanted. I knew I wanted to be a head coach. Now, you can want to be a head coach, and it's still very challenging to meet all your goals with all the competition, but I was one of the really fortunate people. I was a head coach at age 30. I was the youngest coach in the country. And then at Cincinnati, I was the youngest major college head coach in the country. Some of that is serendipity. It's not, you know, that's anything guaranteed. And, But I've, I think the reality of our success is it's all about personnel personnel in terms of the student athletes and personnel in, in, in terms of the coaches. And when people say, Hey, you're the, you know, the winningest coach in Ivy league history, I say, no, we are. I mean, the reality is to get where we've gotten in the time we've been here, it's, we've had tremendous over 750 unbelievable student athletes. We've had probably 60 different assistant coaches here, obviously in a 30-year tenure, and we all share in that. And it's more of a program, uh, I would say, accomplishment than anything else. But yeah, we've had, uh, I mean, Joe Philbin was uh, my first, my second offensive line coach. Uh, Joe's been a head coach in the uh, in the NFL. He's now with Dallas. Uh, Lou Anarumo, you know, my first secondary coach. Lou is the DC at Cincinnati this year. Did an amazing job. This close to winning a Super Bowl, and that, on. That's, and on. that's when I. I'm sorry to cut you off, Coach. I saw Lou at a clinic 
when he was the D-backs coach for you. So I'm glad you mentioned him. Yeah, so again, like any organization, you're only as good as the people around you. And I think that's what we've done a particularly good job of, John, um, selecting our student athletes and selecting our assistant coaches. Those guys have given us an opportunity to be successful uh, literally on an annual basis. I want to ask you about the Yale game. Obviously, it's such a big game every year, no matter what the records are. I covered it in, I think, 2018 when you beat them at Fenway Park. Um, and it's just it's it's just an exciting event. Has, has there been any specific game with them that sticks out? And how would you describe the rivalry to somebody who's not in it? The best way, Adam, to describe the rivalry is it's no different to our kids than Ohio State Michigan is. It's no different for our kids than it is Alabama, Georgia. It means as much to them as it does to those kids in the Big Ten or in the SEC. And uh, yeah, there's so many great memories. Um, I go back to uh, dating myself now when the great running back from Canada Clifton Dawson was on our team. Uh, he's still the all-time leading rusher in, in uh, Ivy League history. Clifton scored the touchdown and triple overtime in the dark. And prior to the play, the officials said, if you don't score here, we're calling the game because Yale didn't have lights. And it was truly, it was pitch black on our last possession. And we got the thing across to win in triple overtime in the dark. That was tremendously exciting. The Fenway game was tremendously exciting. You know, the one we had to clinch, clinch the Ivy League championship here um, in 2015, you know, we were down with about, you know, 40 seconds, very much like this year. We're down with about 40 seconds left. And we went, we ran the slant and go to fish for the touchdown for about a 63 yarder. And uh, the loudest I've ever heard any stadium. It was just amazing and held on to, to win that game. Uh, this year was, as you know, obviously as exciting as you can get. I felt like it was a bit of karma, if you will, you know, after the Princeton debacle. Um, yeah, it was just, uh, you know, if you have great kids around you, you're going to have some really amazing endings. And uh, the the combination of, Offense, defense, and special teams at the level that we played down in New Haven this past year was just tremendous. You know, we got it done on all three levels, and we needed pretty much perfection to pull that thing out. Coach, I want to ask you about another rival that people may not consider a rival, and that's Holy Cross. Um, I was at the game last year. I believe it was the first time you and I met after you beat them at Fit and Field, and at least to me, it feels like one of the better rivalries in the area right now. Just your thoughts on, on what you two have kind of developed over the years. Well, Holy, we've played Holy Cross almost on an annual basis since I've been here. Uh, they've had some tremendous coaches, and uh, they're always tough. Uh, we've been really fortunate. I don't know if we won five or six in a row. I'm not even sure. But <laughs> everyone seems extremely difficult. And this year, I think statistically looked like an easy game. It never felt like it at all. 
They've got a terrific program. Uh, they've done a tremendous job in their league, and uh, I think they've got a terrific coaching staff. Coach, I wanted to ask you your thoughts on the Ivy League and playing in the FCS playoffs. I know that it's come up through the years, and of course in the Ivy League you guys don't qualify for the FCS playoffs. You play for a league title. Just your thoughts on that. Is that something that you think program-wise, you know what, that's enough for the kids? Or do you think at some point down the road do you envision the Ivy League possibly playing in the FCS playoffs? Well, John, somebody asked me that question, uh, you know, decades ago when I first became the coach here. And I said, there's no question that we'll eventually go to the playoffs. And it just seemed like the most obvious thing in the world. If for no other reason, we have the largest Division I athletic program on planet Earth, ironically, at Harvard. We have 42 Division I varsity sports. 41 of the 42 are allowed to compete in postseason competition. And it's an Ivy League decision. It's not an FCS Division I decision. So, you know, when people ask me that question when I first got the job, I said there's no question that it's only a matter of time before that changes. And it, it, amazingly, um, we just have gotten very little traction at the top uh, in our league with that. And, um, you know, sometimes, you know, I'm just dumb, dumbfounded that, you can, you know, it, it just seems the most obvious thing in the world. Again, if for no other reason than every other varsity team is allowed to do that uh, in the Ivy League. Yeah, it just it, it amazes me because when you look at the success you've had, the success, you know, Buddy Tevens has had at Dartmouth, the success, you know, Princeton's had. And then you have years where Penn under Al Bagnoli was really good. And you look at the league as a whole. And you know that Ivy League teams can compete for a national championship. It literally has nothing to do other than league bylaws. And and I know, look, speaking from a media perspective, I, I personally, it bothers me because you have had some really good teams at Harvard that could have made a national title run. And I just wish that the powers that be would see, would see through the trees a little bit on this because I, I think it's a missed opportunity. Well, I think we're all on the same page with that. And um, again, you only fight the battles you feel like you have a chance of winning. And like I said, I, I would have thought two decades ago that this was such a no-brainer. <clears throat> um, and it still doesn't get a lot of traction. And, you know, they're smart enough not to really, you know, bring it up very much. But um, I can think of you know, just as a couple teams, the 97 team, the 2001 team, the 2014, the 2015 team, and others, you know, I, I thought we would have had a great shot at the national championship, quite frankly. But again, it is what it is. And um, you only control what you can control. And at this point, um, I wish I could say that I think it's inevitable, but um, I don't, I'm not sure I'd be uh, uh, accurate on that. Um, speaking of the Ivy League in general, it just seems to me that lately, the last five years or so, I don't know if it, it goes back further than that, but it just seems to me that there are a lot of teams who can win the league every year. And it's sort of, it's, it's, there's not one team that's dominating everything. It, it seems like 
a bunch of the same teams are near the top, but it seems like, you know, it's just very, very competitive near the top. And, and even the teams at the bottom can, can hurt you. So what is, is the, is this as competitive as you've seen the league as far as who can win it, or is it just sort of always been that way? I think more than ever to your point, Adam, um, it's more competitive than ever. Um, everybody's getting great student athletes. Um, everybody has an opportunity with di different academic indexes that they have a, the availability to get good athletes. And, um, I know this, I think we had gone 16 consecutive winning seasons in a row and all that, uh, we all know that all that did is motivate the folks in Hanover, the folks in New Haven, the folks in New Jersey, the folks in Pennsylvania and others. Uh, but again, to your point, every game's a grind. Every game is a grind. Everybody is good athletes. Everybody is well coached and it's more of a grind than ever for sure. Uh, just to kind of piggyback off of that a little bit, Coach, you mentioned, you know, the way last year ended. And I'm curious if you allow the guys to use the year before as motivation or if you are strictly a, hey, we're turning the page, this is a, a new year type of coach, or is there a balance there as well? I think there definitely is a balance, Kevin. Um, we got our kids rings this year. Okay, now bear with me. We got our kids rings for the very simple reason that the only thing, the literally the only thing between us and an Ivy, another Ivy League championship, because quite simply, an, an administrative error by a part-time employee. That was it. It was that simple. And the last time it happened was back in 1944. And in 1944, um, the team that won the game by the wrong decision by an official, okay, acquiesced and said, no, we're not going to take it. And, and it was, and, um, you know, the, the rightful team got credit for the win. But my roundabout point is that it's a balance. They got rings that said champions on them because they did everything they needed to do. And it was a clerical administrative error. But it didn't say Ivy Championships. And I said, hey, I'm not putting one on my finger. I'm not putting that ring on my finger until we win one that says Ivy Champions. So it's a combination of both. The past is the past. But any mo motivation you can find, any motivation you can utilize is good fuel. You are watching slash listening to the New England Football Show presented by Mortgage Right. I'm your host, John Serenitas. As always, I'm joined by Adam Kirch and Kevin Stone. Tim Murphy, head football coach at Harvard University. Just as a quick reminder, if you are looking into selling your current home or you are a first-time home buyer and want to get pre-approved for a mortgage, give Herb Devine a call, 781-254-2846. Or you can also email his office at situate.mortgageright.com. He and his team will answer any questions you might have. They are available anytime, including nights and weekends, although... I don't know if you'll be able to get Coach Devine in the fall at night, especially on a Friday night, but I'm pretty sure you can get him every other night. Uh, Coach, you, we, I kind of want to go back to a question that Adam asked in regards to how competitive the Ivy League is. And when you look at the job Coach Stevens has done at Dartmouth, then you look at what you know Tony's done at Yale, um, then you look at James Perry at Brown. I covered a bunch of their games last year. 
And I was very impressed at how competitive they were. And it speaks to your point where this league is a grind week in and week out. You don't you don't catch a break because if you take your foot off the gas, you, you can end up losing a game. But talk about the job that Coach Perry's done at Brown and just your overall thoughts on, on how competitive the Ivy League, particularly in New England, has gotten in recent years. Yeah, every week's a grind, as we all agree. Um, and that goes out of league. When when you're playing, you know, Holy Cross as an example every year, and that's your one of your out of league games, and <clears throat> they've gone to the FCS playoffs three years in a row. Wow, you know, it's uh, it's always very challenging. And it's the same thing, you know, whether it's Brown and Coach Perry, who does a, a terrific job, um, you know, playing that up-tempo offense and preparing for that with the outstanding quarterbacks they have, um, a, a team that's getting better and better defensively. You know, it's only a matter of time when they're going to be in the thick of things. So, yeah, you take it one week at a time. Uh, you realize that uh, – You've got to have a combination of good personnel. You've got to be well coached. You got to stay healthy, and you got to make sure that with your out of league games that uh, you're playing really good teams. But you know you stay healthy in those games too. And the common the combination is just quite simply not just one week at a time, but in our our team, our program, it's one day at a time. You know, one day at a time, we're going to find a way to get better. And if we have a setback, we're going to come the next day and have a good day, whether that day is a Saturday or a Friday night game or it's a practice, whatever it is, you know, just focus, stay focused and good things will happen. It seems from covering you guys over the years and just following football, one thing not every fan quite understands, it, but I think is important to know is that you guys get a lot of commitments from kids who have Big Ten offers, ACC offers, Pac-12, well, you name it. And you, you guys get a, a very uh, high-quality athlete in your class uh, every year. How often does that happen with you guys or, you know, in a given recruiting cycle? And, but it, it, it seems like it happens pretty often. Well, Adam, it's, uh, you know, every year, you know, we're, we are – competing at times against the Pac-12, maybe the Big Ten, um, certainly, you know, some FBS Southern teams. But the heart and soul of our team, in, in, in the interest of full disclosure, are really high-level, high-academic FCS Division I kids, even though we'll get X amount of guys that certainly have other opportunities at an even higher level. Coach, I want to go back, and you mentioned, um, you know, this year's team, there's high hopes, but you also lost a lot of guys from last year. One guy in particular, um, Aaron Champion at running back. I'm just curious, kind of thought your thoughts on him first and foremost and, and what he brought to the program and then um, kind of who you expect to, to maybe fill his shoes a little bit. Well, <laughs> Nobody's necessarily filling those shoes, or they may fill them, but they're not going to be able to run as fast. I mean, Champ was a, a legit 10, 700 meter guy. Um, he's with the Cowboys right now and, as a free agent. And those guys are hard to replace. And, <clears throat> you know, to that end, we do have a lot of positions we got to fill, and we're certainly optimistic. But we had 
I think six of our kids signed NFL contracts last year. Now, a couple of them were kids who had grad transferred to LSU, Liam Shanahan, uh, grad transfer to Penn State, Eric Wilson, um, uh, and uh, grad transfer from Virginia um, to the NFL. And then we had, uh, you know, our captain, um, Jordan Hill, you know, sign an NFL contract. Uh, Sham signed an NFL contract. So when you're losing guys like that, um, you know, there certainly is a lot of rebuilding to do at certain positions. I feel like Aiden Bourget at the running back position is an outstanding running back, very different type of kid. He probably doesn't have that elite speed that uh, allows you to get to the NFL that uh, certainly Champ had. Um, but, boy, he's tough. He's, he reads blocks really well, and he's going to be a really good running back for us, and we'll be very solid there. Um, defensively, um, you know, we also had you know, other grad transfers we lost last year. We have two kids on full scholarship at Notre Dame next year. Uh, we have one full scholarship at defensive tackle at UCLA. Um, Spencer Raymond, um, full uh Full scholarship, grad transfer to, uh, let's see, North Carolina. Another kid, full grad transfer to Duke. So we, between those grad transfers and the kids who graduated to the NFL, um, yeah, we got a lot of work to do. There's no question about it. Those guys make you good coaches. Let's face it. So we're going to have to have a lot of guys step up this year, and I believe they will. Coach, you know, when we talk about recruiting, and obviously the Harvard brand is a national brand, but you also want to do well in your own backyard. And recently you picked up a couple of key 23 commitments locally. Uh, Isaiah Kasavinsky from BBNN, of course. His dad played for you. Great guy. Uh, one of the best defensive players to ever play at Harvard. Got drafted in the fourth round by the Seattle Seahawks. Uh, and then you got a commitment from John Mould. Uh, who is a tackle, offensive tackle at Zavarian. How important is it for you guys to not only compete nationally, but to also make sure, and I'm not, you know, I know you'll hear college coaches say, we want to put a fence around an area, but how important is it for you guys to be in the conversation locally as well? Because as we've seen, there's plenty of good talent in Massachusetts and New England as well. Well, yeah, I mean, we feel the same about everywhere we recruit. You know, whether it's Southern California, whether it's Texas, whether it's Georgia, Florida, uh, Ohio, uh, but it all starts with that home. And, and we've obviously done a, a good job over the years, um, you know, with a lot of different assistant coaches working those areas. Um, it certainly starts at home. And the reality is, I think you have more information or some people would say misinformation on recruits. Than, than we've ever had before with all the rec recruiting services out there. So we know who these guys are, but once in a while you stumble upon a kid that, you know, nobody's recruiting. I'll give you one example. We took a kid out of New Hampshire um, a couple of years ago and he was not being highly recruited. Quite frankly, he kept right. He kept emailing me kind of pestering me um, that, you know, he, he wanted to be recruited. And our assistant coaches watched the film. I watched the film. I thought it was pretty good. Um, assistant coaches watched it. They weren't, you know, they weren't true believers yet. Came to our camp. I really liked them. Uh, assistant coaches thought it was okay. But finally, the kids sent me 
a film of him, a video of him as a 12-year-old hockey player. And I swear, the way he skated, he looked like Bobby Orr. I mean, it was... Now, this kid um, we're talking about is now a 6'2", 310-pound kid, the top <laughs> defensive lineman in the Ivy League, arguably next year, Thor Griffith. Yeah. And Thor wanted to become a high-level hockey player until he just got too big for it. But when I saw his athleticism as a skater, it all came together. When he sent me his Division I championship, heavyweight wrestling championship video of him throwing a 200, another 270-pound kid around, I said, this kid's something special. And it, it, it's interesting. Who names their kid Thor at birth? That's not a nickname. <laughs> and his mom's from Korea, and she's about five foot six, about 110 pounds. Wow. But he's an interesting kid, and sometimes you got to get lucky. And the, this particular kid was, and by the way, has a had a perfect SAT. Wow. Um, wow. And that's a kid who recruited us more than we recruited him. And so we just, we became true believers. So you got to get lucky at times as well. Ryan Fitzpatrick was another great example of that. That's awesome. Um, I'm curious, um, you know, about New England recruits. And I ask this almost every coach that we get on the show. But is there a type of kid you get when you get a kid from New England? Or is it just like anywhere else? It's just like anywhere else, and Thor Griffith might be the prime example. <laughs> you know, Thor could be from anywhere. That's cool. Coach, I actually want to kind of piggyback off of that. You know, you mentioned kids recruiting themselves to you, and maybe more than ever now, social media is prevalent. Two things. One, I'm curious, you know, being around as long as you have, how much have you kind of had to change how you look at kids, especially social media, and then the camp scene, how big is that for you guys now as well? Kevin, to your point, to me personally, I believe like you have to adapt and evolve about every seven years. Things just change. <clears throat> What's a great example of that? Used to be that the NFL trickled down to colleges, meaning colleges would sort of emulate the offensive and defensive structures and schemes that they saw in the NFL. Now it's completely the opposite. Hey, the biggest change in the NFL is dual threat quarterbacks. Would you agree? Seemingly out of nowhere over the past four or five years, they have really copied what happens. And a lot of what you see now in the NFL is what people have been doing in college for years. And it's the same thing. Those things trickle down and those things can trickle up. But uh, the reality is you have to constantly adapt and evolve, not necessarily on a yearly basis, but whether it's scheme, whether it's recruiting, um, you definitely see that things have changed. Social media, social media over the last four or five years, if you're not big into social media, you're not getting your message out. And you're not really get, getting the attention of these 15 and 16 and 17-year-olds. And whether we like it or not, those kids are really into social media. And I respect that. You know, for someone personally who, you know, I'm on social media through Harvard football, but otherwise, you know, I'm not on anything. 
I mean, I get too many emails to begin with. I get too many texts to begin with. So, but if, if you, you either go big or you go home uh, with social media, and that's just one aspect of recruiting for sure. Coach, you know, obviously, you know, Kevin had asked you about camps and, and it seems now camps have, have become bigger and bigger. Uh, it used to be that you had your camp and, and the other schools had their camps. And then you might have a couple of camps that attracted a larger number of kids. But now you're getting more of this showcase element. How important is it for you guys to have a presence at those camps? Because you want to be there, but you also have your camp where you can evaluate kids. But how important is it for you guys to try to have a footprint in as many of these outside camps that aren't your camp as possible? It's absolutely critical. And we have seven camps of our own, which will um, essentially give us, you know, seven, 800 kids that we have to evaluate. And maybe 8% of those guys that we actually recruit, but you got to really evaluate all of them. Those kids will come to campus. Um, in the meantime, we've got kids at Northwestern, we've got kids at, at Stanford, we've got kids at Cal, we've got kids at all the Texas ones, all the Deep South ones, we've got them at Duke, and we've got them everywhere in between, to the point where there's very little time off for Division One coaches, because we are, at least at Harvard, we've got four, we've actually got four more camps over the next two weeks to evaluate somewhere around four or 500 student athletes. And at the same time, we've evaluated another 200 guys that are considered division one prospects from all over the country that our coaches uh, go to. So the combination is very, a lot less family time in the summer and a lot more travel and a lot more recruiting, no question about it. The combination of all those places we have to visit, along with having flying kids in for official visits, is it's a extraordinarily busy time of year in the recruiting process. And if we don't have probably 85% of our commitments by uh, August 1, and whether it's us or Dartmouth or any place else, you know, you're, it's going to be uphill from there. I'm curious, and this is another sort of a recruiting question, but, um, you know, something I hear from a lot of coaches is, you know, that we don't see as many three-sport athletes anymore. Um, and I think it's always good if you're a high school kid to play as many sports as possible. But what is what is your philosophy on that? Do you, do you want one of your recruits to be a three-sport athlete, or do you think it's not really that important? I want three-sport athletes. Not that we get them at them necessarily as many. Um, and I really think families are making mistakes when they say we have to specialize. Um, some of the best players we've ever had, and Dante Balastrachi is one of the greatest examples from New Bedford High School, who was all state in all three sports. Those kids tend to have the highest ceiling when they get here. If you get a kid, let's say from Texas, who has just played football, those kids don't seem to transcend whatever you think their limitations are. Um, I love three sport athletes. I think it makes sense. In our family, we had one rule uh, from our children, Molly Connor and Grace Murphy. Hey guys, girls, you're playing three sports. Why do we have to play three sports, dad? Because you're gonna have more fun. You're never gonna get sick of any one sport. 
and you're going to make a lot more friends. And they did. And it worked for them. And we love three sport athletes because we think they have the highest ceiling, but we're seeing fewer and fewer of them. And especially north of the Mason Dixon line, um, you know, we have less kids playing football and that's definitely concerning. Coach, last one for me real quick. It's an easy one. The last time we talked, I asked you how you kind of spend some downtime. And you said it's not very often, but um, you do do some stuff. What have you done this summer to kind of recharge and um, just kind of let the fans know what Coach Murphy does during the summer? Well, Kevin, first of all, I have this theory that about 15% of people really love what they do. I'm in those 15%. 15% kind of hate what they do. And then most folks are right in the middle. I happen to be someone that loves what they do, and that's why I've done it for so long. But be honest with you, the only thing I love more than my job is playing. And people say, what do you mean playing? Well, I don't do any of it well, but I love to play golf. I love to play tennis. I love to bike. I love to swim. I, I, I love to do stuff. I just don't, I have less and less time to do it. Uh, but when I hang it up someday, um, those are things I want to do a little more of because, you know, as a kid, you know, I played a bunch of different sports and uh, not that I was great at any of them, good enough to be a, you know, a division two football player. Um, but, uh, you know, I love playing. The only thing I love more than work, work being a relative term for us, um, is playing. I love to play and I do all of those things when I get a chance to the point of, I don't. Sorry, coach. I don't do a lot of. Sit, I don't. I'm not very good at sitting still. <laughs> coach, final question of the night from us, uh, and then I'm kind of piggybacking off of Kevin's question here. Uh, you've been at this a long time, my friend. Have you thought about when you think enough might be enough, or you're just you love it too much, and you're just going until you 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 think you're done? I think the reality that you reach a certain age. Um, when you're in a certain percentile of Division One coaches out there, <clears throat> I've been I've been a head coach since I was 30 years old. So you do the math. Um, I won't be doing this forever. That's just a reality. Um, but I will sign a new contract this year that will take me to X. And um, you know, right now I, I want to keep doing it. I love it. There will come a time where I want to spend more time uh, with my family. Uh, I have two children, well-educated children that are on the West Coast, another daughter in New York City. Uh, my wife and I have never had a honeymoon. And I'll tell you a funny story, fellas. You know, we got married right before I got the Cincinnati job. And so we had, we had planned a honeymoon, but all of a sudden, you know, it's the middle of summer. Uh, we're building a house in Cincinnati, taking over a job, moving across the country, all the stuff you're not supposed to do. And my wife says, hey, can we do that honeymoon next year? I said, fine. Well, that was 32 years ago. <laughs> we tried for a second time two years ago. My wife booked all the stuff. We're going to Paris. She said, I said, where do you want to go? She says, Paris said, fine. I'll go wherever you want to go. And 72 hours before our flight took off, Paris shut down for COVID. So my wife thinks I'm a co-conspirator. <laughs> so, so actually, we're actually getting it done next May. 
We're going to Ireland and France for nine days and that, to make my wife happy. So that'll be good. There you go. And, and, and I'm sure no matter what's going on in the recruiting world, I think third time is going to be the charm, right? You got to get that. You got to get it in now. If not, if not, John, I'm in big trouble. <laughs> if not, you might be sleeping in the office uh, more than just during the season. <laughs> Coach Murphy, I want to say thank you. You are um, you're a gentleman. You're a legend in this business. Um, you are Harvard football, and, and, and you are a legend in this area, and we couldn't thank you enough for taking some time out of your busy schedule to join us tonight. Well, thank you. Uh, legend is a very relative term, but thanks, fellas. And, and seriously, thanks for all you, all you guys do. Uh, my point being, um, you know, football north of the Mason-Dixon line, we need to keep fighting for it. People need to understand the power of football. And even though that sounds self-serving, I've never heard a high school football player that didn't say, best thing I ever did, made friends for life, taught me life lessons that you can't necessarily learn in the classroom. So, yeah. Um, and when I stop coaching, I'm still going to be a big advocate for football. Well. We, we are we are fortunate that we got to spend some time with you tonight and and um, you have done plenty for football and I know that you'll continue to do more coach Murphy and thank you for the kind words we appreciate it sir that is Tim Murphy head football coach at Harvard University that'll do it for this week's show for Adam Kevin coach Murphy I'm John Sarney until next time peace see ya thank you guys